Second Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we are tonight. Um, in chapters 8 and 9, Paul kind of deviated from his line of thought that he had been following in the previous several chapters. Remember, in chapters 2 through 7, he was spending a great deal of time defending himself against those who were accusing him of not being trustworthy, uh, that uh, uh, you know his teachings were, were not as, as good as some of the others that had been uh, visiting the, the city of Corinth. And, and there was division among them, and there were issues that he had to deal with, and so he dealt with much of that in chapters uh, 2 through 7. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he talked about the, uh, the fact that giving was a great important aspect of uh, what he was expecting from them because they had committed to that uh, in his first letter uh, so that he could bring the offering with him that came from Corinth and also all the other churches in the region uh, to Jerusalem to help the saints in Jerusalem in their uh, terrible situation that they were having to deal with there. Now in chapter 10, he goes back to the final comments that he wants to make with regard to his defense of not only himself, but of the authority that God has given him and and a defense of the gospel that he has been proclaiming as well. And so these last few chapters are uh, more of that kind of instruction that Paul has given to the Corinthian church and is very helpful for us to know the things that are on Paul's heart and apply them in our own situations as we uh, face the various kinds of things that we have to deal with as believers uh, serving the Lord in these last days. So this is important information for us as well as for the Corinthian church. But we'll find again that Paul is uh, reminding the Corinthians that there are some in Corinth who are basically troublemakers, and he's going to have to deal with those in these last few chapters. So verse 1 of chapter 10 begins with these words, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with what that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So Paul's laying it out very clearly. He's dealing with the issue of certain individuals who thought less of Paul than, than was really justified. And one of the things that he's saying here, remember in verse 1 he said, I'm pleading with you. In verse 2 he says, I beg you pretty close to the same words in the Greek language, I implore you, I ask of you, consider this. Behold, what I am telling you is necessary. What I am going to say is absolutely truthful, and I'm doing it in the meekness and gentleness of Christ himself. I'm reminded that Jesus spoke of himself only once in the Gospel records with regard to his character. And it was where he tells believers to take up their cross and follow him. He is meek and lowly. And he invites them to, no matter what burdens they may have, to put their burdens upon him instead of 
having to carry those burdens themselves. But in that passage that I'm referring to, Jesus again says about himself, he is meek and lowly. That's what Paul is saying. Meekness and lowliness are characteristics that we should have because when we do have those characteristics, we're imitating the character of Christ himself. Now that didn't really fit with the the understanding that the Gentile church in Corinth had about the kind of character that we should be manifesting. They believed that the better qualities were high intelligence, uh, gifted speaking, oratory, uh, the way you presented yourself in a masterly way uh, was critically important in the Gentile mind of that day. Not so with the Christian. Uh, That is not the way we should be looking at how others are in their effectiveness in their Christian experience, their Christian walk, whether they're teachers or whether they're part of the, the body of Christ in other capacities. We, none of us, should be puffed up about our appearance or about our intellect or about our financial condition or about our status in society. None of that matters. Meekness and gentleness are what really matter. And Paul's emphasizing that here. He was meek and lowly, and so should we be. And Paul is saying he too approaches that aspect of his relationship with others through a gentle spirit, a meekness and a gentleness that was representing Christ in that very, very way. So Paul, because of that, was considered to be something of a less important figure among the leadership in the early Christian church at Corinth. Even though he is the one who founded the church, he is the one that established it and was there for well over a year, there were still some who thought very little of Paul because, well, history tells us that Paul's stature and his appearance was not really up to snuff with the expectations of those who would see him. He was, in appearance, not very attractive, apparently. Um, By his own admission, he had poor eyesight. There were other things he says about himself that indicates that even his oratory oratory skill was, was less than what they would expect of a great presenter of facts that he was presenting to the Corinthian church. So he's, he's again begging them, imploring them to be patient with them as he is patient with that church. They should be patient with him. And he says in verse 2 again, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of it us as if we walked according to the flesh. He doesn't really want to present himself to the whole body in a way that would cause them to think he's overbearing. There are some who are going to, because they are against him, be the recipients of that boldness that he's talking about here. But he doesn't want the church at large to think that of him. He'd rather the church would consider him to be meek and lowly as Christ was. Well, verse 3 continues and says, For, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We don't do things the way we used to when we were not Christian. And 
that for some of us is a great change in the lifestyle that we've chosen. But Paul is saying, we're not going to be going around trying to find a fight. We're not going to be trying to start the war. We're not going to be try, trying to uh, seek to win battles. That's not what we're about. He says we have a different warfare that we have to be very concerned with, not one against another, but that warfare that Paul is going to address has both an internal aspect and a spiritual aspect that needs to be considered. Paul here in chapter 10 verse 4 is going to describe something of great importance to us with regard to how we deal with some of those things that challenge us in our relationships with each other, in our relationship with God, and in our internal condition of our heart. He says in verse 4 these words, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That's a great passage that Paul has given some very, very important instruction to the church in the way that we are to conduct ourselves. Notice that, again, he's not just limiting this warfare to one aspect of our relationship with others, although that's a major part of what he's saying here. But he's also talking about things that are, again, internal. The thoughts in our minds, for instance. We have to take those into captivity as well. We have to take into captivity the thoughts that we have that might be negative thoughts toward other people. But we also have to realize that we have an enemy of our souls, and that is Satan. And he needs to be uh, resisted. And when we resist him by humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to God, he will flee. That's the promise of the Word of God. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So what are those weapons? Well, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, you see something of that in the list of armor that Paul tells us that we are to put on. In chapter 6, and we've read this before in our study in First and Second Corinthians, and I want to repeat again, the reading that we find in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, where Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and by the way, we are in evil days. If you don't think so, start looking around. You'll find that it is very much the truth today. These are evil days. And we are to stand, withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, Paul says, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, 
This is important because he says, Above all these things, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Paul is saying we have weapons of our warfare. And among that armor that is discussed in chapter 6 of, of Ephesians, we find two very important weapons that are descri- described. More than two, but two major important weapons. The first is the shield. The shield is a defensive weapon. It's absolutely necessary that we take that shield and keep it in front of us to protect us, to keep from being injured by the onslaught of the enemy. The shield is so very important for the Roman soldier, and Paul is using these Roman soldier illustrations to show how important it is for us to have that protection against the wiles of the enemy. He's firing these fiery darts at us constantly. He's the accuser of brethren, and he is always seeking who he may devour. Peter tells us that. He walks about to and fro through all the earth, seeking whom he may devour, like a roaring lion. But he has no power over us when we have that shield ahead, in front. Holding that shield before us is our protection, the shield of God. And then the sword. The sword is a, an offensive weapon. The sword is what Paul describes as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And right after the fact that he mentions the sword and the helmet, the sword in particular, he says that we should be praying always for all the saints. So we have the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and we have the weapon of prayer. And those two combined are the weapons of our warfare that Paul is describing here in Second Corinthians chapter 10. Go back to chapter 10 and read again what we read in verse 4 of chapter 10 where it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What are those strongholds? He describes them in chapter uh, verse 5. He says, Casting down arguments and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. There are those who would try to bring into the church doctrines that are not from God. There are arguments that they will make to say that, well, you need to do this instead of this, or you need to believe this instead of that. Their arguments are false arguments, but the weapons of our warfare cast those arguments down. When we know the Word of God and we approach these things with prayer, we can defeat the enemy at his first attempt to attack us with false doctrine, with those who would come into the church who would seek to destroy, distract, or confuse the body of Christ. That is the weapon that we choose to use the weapon of prayer and the weapon of the Word of God, and we need them to know the Word of God very well. Satan knows the Word of God very well too, you know, but he always 
misrepresents the Word of God. So if he's doing that to any of us, we need to be able to counter his attack by relying on our knowledge of what the Word of God says. Remember, that's what Jesus did in the wilderness. When Satan came to Jesus after his 40 days in the wilderness without any food or water, he tempted Jesus. And each temptation was brought to the Lord in the form of a portion of Scripture that Satan misquoted or used, but not in the proper context. We need to be very careful when people come and do the same thing. And what did Jesus do in response? What did Jesus say in response to what Satan had tempted him with? His response was the very Word of God. And that is how we also need to function with regard to the attacks of the enemy or from those who are used by the enemy to come into the church again to confuse and to disrupt and to destroy the beautiful gospel that God has laid out for us. Paul had said to the church, I desire to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That is what we need to be doing as well, to know nothing besides Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The gospel record is what we need to rely on. We need to know what the gospel is. And if we know what the gospel is, there's nothing that come against us that will win any battle that we might have to be forced into. That is the promise of the Word of God. And so what is the gospel? Well, Paul also shared what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians. You may remember that Paul said there in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ came and died and was buried and was raised again. Those are the elements of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If you know and believe those basic tenets of our faith, that is the foundation upon which we build everything else. And yes, there is much more to know in the Word of God that we must know in order to fight the wiles of the enemy. However, that is the basis upon which all of our doctrine must be made. It is the foundation. Paul said you can build on nothing other than that one foundation, which is Christ Jesus. So this portion that we're looking at here in chapter 10, in verses 4 through 6, are very, very essential to every believer, not just church leaders, but every believer in Christ. Because the enemy will attack, and he uses others to attack, and we even have our own internal uh, problems because our mind is connected still to this fleshly body of sin. So that's why Paul says, not only casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, but he then adds in the end of verse 5, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul will tell us elsewhere in Philippians that we are to think of only those things that are holy and just and pure and perfect, those things that honor God, 
those things that are not of the world, he says we should be not earthly minded, but heavenly minded. Now, you know the saying, and I've mentioned this more than once, that there are those who say, if you're doing these things that I'm recommending, then you're more heavenly minded than you are earthly minded, and you're no earthly good, they would argue. That's very, very false. I submit to you, and have always said this, and I always will believe it and say it, that if you are heavenly minded, you are of great value in this one sense, that God has put you and me in this world to be good, to be light. And that is the best earthly good that anyone could ever possibly expect to receive from us. The goodness, the gentleness, the kindness, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shared with those who would listen so that they could know too what it is that we believe and they could receive it. That their eyes would be open, their ears would be open to the truth, their hearts would be softened to receive it. So there's plenty of opportunity for each one of us to cast down those things that are in our minds. We need to make sure that we filter out those things that are not of God and only focus on those things that are goodness, graciousness, righteousness, peace and joy and love and loving kindness, all of the things that are attributes of what God wants us to be, the character that we are to have as believers. That's what we need to focus on. And that's what we need to be very careful to avoid letting our minds be filled with other things, other things that distract us, other things that cause us to stumble or fall, sinful thoughts, things that don't fit into what God expects from us as His children. He needs, wants us to be obedient to Him. So we need to know His Word, we need to be in prayer constantly, and we need to continue to watch our own thought processes so that we keep them in captivity, in obedience to the will of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, verse 6, Paul includes the fact that we need to do these things in order to punish all disobedience. He's talking about those who don't believe as he has taught, that are in the church, who try to deceive those who are in the church by teaching them false doctrine. They need to be disciplined. They need to be corrected. And that is why we need the Word of God, so that we can be able to correct that which is wrong. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the sword of the Spirit that we're talking about. And that sword of the Spirit is able to cut down into the very bone and marrow that's another internal aspect of what Paul is referring to here. The thing that we need to do in our lives is make sure we cut out all of that which is not of God so that we might represent Him and be transformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. Verse 6 again says, being ready to punish all disobedience when 
your obedience is fulfilled. He's expecting us, God is expecting us to be obedient to Him. And that is what Paul is saying here in this letter to the Corinthian church. Very, very important portion of Scripture. And I've only touched the surface of what it means to uh, conduct ourselves in this warfare that we have. But, brothers and sisters, we can spend our, and we should spend our entire life learning all that we can about what the Word of God tells us with regard to the warfare that we are involved with. And all of what Paul teaches in the Word of God, all of what Peter teaches and James and John and and the writer of Hebrews, all of the Gospel writers, give us that detail of everything that we need to know in order to fight the good fight. So that we can say, as Paul said, when he told Timothy his life was coming to an end and he had fought the good fight, he had won, run the race and there is laid up for me, Paul said, a crown of righteousness. But not only for me only, but for all those who love his appearing. That's the promise to all the church. A crown of righteousness. But we need to fight the fight. We need to run the race so as to win. We need to be obedient, faithful servants of God, especially in these last hours. And friends, it is going to be getting more and more difficult to stand for Christ, I believe, in the last days. As things continue to wind down, as we get closer to that day, Paul said, we're closer now than when we first believed. That is the way that I approach every day. Each day comes and goes, and God allows us to experience life in this present hour. We don't know how many more days we've got, but every day that starts again in the morning when you wake up, make sure that you spend that first few moments talking to the Lord, inviting Him to lead you in that day. And for that day, whatever day it may be, this day, tomorrow, or the next, that day, you're closer still than when you were the day before to His return. That's what we need to focus on. We need to be reminding ourselves constantly about. And that's what Paul is trying to focus the attention of the Corinthian church and us here in this letter. So the remainder of this chapter talks about Paul's authority and the limits of his authority in the church. He says in verse 7, Do you, you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so, even so, we are Christ's. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you in letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, his speech contemptible. Let us say this, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. So this portion that I just read, verses 7 through 11, talks about Paul's authority as the Apostle of Christ. But he asks a question rhetorically at the very beginning when he says, do you, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? 
remember, that was the common problem in Israel during the time of the judges. When Samuel was judging Israel, the last of the judges, the people wanted a king. They weren't satisfied with Samuel as their leader, although he wasn't their king, he was the judge of Israel. And they made a distinction between that and kings of the nations around them. So they came to a conclusion that this wasn't really working for them, they thought. They needed to have a king just like all the other nations around them. Well, their appeal really bothered Samuel. He felt rejected. And he wept over that appeal. He went to the Lord, crying to the Lord, saying, Lord, they want a king. What am I to do? And the Lord's answer to Samuel was this. Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. So they were given a king because God said, do it, Samuel. Do what they say. And the king that they selected was Samuel. Samuel's choice, rather, because even he looked at the outer appearance. He saw in that first king a man who stood above the rest of the nation, tall and handsome. His name was Saul. But it wasn't God's real choice. But it was chosen and allowed by God so that God could make a point about the way that they should make their selections. Later, Saul proved himself to be a very, very bad king. And God judged Saul and ended up taking the throne from Saul and gave it to David. But in the process, Saul was rebelling from the word of God, turning against God, and turning against God's servant David. And it came a point when God finally said to Saul, Enough! You are no longer going to be king over Israel. I've chosen another to replace you. And the reason he did that was the fact that the nation looked upon that which was an outside appearance. God told Samuel, I look on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. So there's a great lesson that God, through Samuel and the life of Saul and David, had chosen to demonstrate that that's how God looks at things. He looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance. Paul is asking the Corinthian church, do you look at things outwardly? For the same reason that he knew his nation had done many years before. And Paul is very disturbed by this, and he wants to correct it. So he says, if anyone is convincing himself that he is in Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are. We're all together, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're all on the same playing field. There is no distinction between any of us as far as God is concerned. Neither male nor female, white nor black, nor slave or free, rich or poor. We're all one in Christ. Paul is conveying this very thought to this people who are trying to say Paul is really not a very pleasant man to look at and he doesn't really have a great speaking voice. In fact, they say, as Paul records here, his speech is contemptible. Those are pretty challenging words. 
brought by several of those who were in Corinth who were trying to be leaders in the church. And Paul is reprimanding them. He's refuting their attitude and their position very strongly here. He says in verse 11 again, let such a person consider this, that we are in word by letters what we are. They said he's very, very strong in his letter writing, but he's weak in his appearance. Paul's going to say that when I get there, you'll find out that I'm no different in appearance than I am in the way that I write my letters. Because I'm the same. What you see is who I am. It's what I am. I am what I am, he says later, by the grace of God through Christ Jesus. That's how we all should live our lives. Expecting that though others may think wrongly of us, or they may think badly of us, I hope it's not correctly in that respect, but if it is, it needs to be corrected. However, when we're wrongly accused, we need to remember to be the same in their presence as we are anywhere else, so that all people see us for who we are in Christ Jesus, never changing, always the same with regard to how we represent our Lord and how we shine His light. Remember, we are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, changed from day to day, from glory to glory. That's how we should appear to others. That's how Paul wanted everyone to see Him, and it is so for all of us as well. We should want that to be the case, and we should work to that end, that people would indeed see Christ in us. Verse 12 continues Paul's defense, and he says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Paul is again saying, Look, stop comparing yourself to other men or other women. That's not the right kind of comparison that you should be making. Don't compare yourselves to one another. Compare yourself instead to Christ. That's the comparison that we need to be making. And if we fall short, and we should admit that we do, then there's work to be done in our lives. Paul is saying those who think themselves, because they're so puffed up about themselves, they think themselves higher than others. Paul will say elsewhere, don't think of yourself any more highly than you ought. When you compare yourself to another, think of yourself and convince yourself that you are lowly compared to others. That's the best way to approach our relationship with one another. Jesus said something very similar in a parable that he gave when he said, when you come into a feast given by some master and you enter the chamber, do not go to the front of the room where the master is and seat yourself close to the master, because he may end up telling you, wait a minute, you don't belong there, you belong way down there. You'll be disgraced, you'll be humbled. And then if you do come in, instead sit at the lower place, and then let the master of the ceremony look upon you and say, no, 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 you don't belong there, you belong up here with me. See, God's word is very clear. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's the Word of God. 
That is how we should live our lives. Don't compare yourself to others, but compare yourself instead to Christ, and you will be indeed a humble individual when you realize how much greater he is than you or I or anybody. Verse 13 says, We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Paul had a ministry. He was a, an apostle, and he had the authority as an apostle to preach the word of God to those who would hear it. He's saying, that's the sphere in which I operate. It doesn't mean that he's greater than they are. He just has a calling to do these things. He's not boasting about himself. He's not boasting about his calling. He's boasting about his relationship with Christ, that God, through Christ, has given him this ministry. And he's going to boast later, we'll see, about his own life before Christ, but only to show them that that was what he used to be. But he said, in that passage that we'll look at sometime in the near future, he counts all of that as dung, just plain manure. All of the credentials that he had, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a tribe of Jesse descendant. He was a man who was well taught in the scriptures, a student of Gamaliel. He was one of the most prominent Pharisees in Jerusalem. And then he met Jesus and everything changed. He's not boasting about those things anymore. He's only boasting about the fact that Christ has saved him and delivered him from all that he once was and made him a new creation in Christ Jesus. And again, as we said and read earlier in our study in Second Corinthians, all things are new. All things are passed away. We're new, new creation in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 14, For we are not overextended ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. He's reminding them, we came to you. We were the first ones there. All the others followed after us. And there are many who came after us because they wanted to change what we had taught you to give you another gospel that they thought was right. But it's not. Remember what the gospel is. Christ came and died. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The Judaizers and all the others who were trying to say differently needed to be corrected, needed to be avoided, needed to be removed or convinced that they are wrong. They can stay if they are willing to humble themselves and acknowledge these truths. Verse 15 says, Not boasting of those things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. Paul started again the church in Corinth. He never, ever went into a community to start a ministry that had been started by somebody else. He encouraged cities like Rome, for instance, to accept him as an apostle, but he didn't invade the 
city of Rome to take over the church, he was there ultimately to add to what was already presented. And he did a wonderful job in Rome. But he never went to Rome to usurp the authority of the ones who founded the Roman church. He never did that anywhere he went. Some were doing that. And he's arguing against that in this passage that we've just looked at. Finally, in verse 16 and 17, his goal is this, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. That's what we need to remember if we're going to represent Christ, we don't commend ourselves. We don't pat ourselves on the back. We don't let men do that. We let that come from the Lord alone. And that's the way it should be. And finally, as we just read in verse 16, it was Paul's desire to go beyond Corinth. And he did, ultimately, on his third missionary journey. He ended up going to Rome. And he was in Rome in prison for two years. And then we believe the word of God stops at the time that he was still under house arrest. But after that, we apparently know from external references and also a couple of the statements that Paul makes in some of the other letters that Paul did go further than Rome Ultimately, many believe he made it to Spain, and some even believe he made it as far as Great Britain. We don't know that for certain, but the extra-biblical evidence is fairly strong, at least as regarding the times that he must have spent in Spain. So Paul did accomplish what he had set out to do. And remember, it was his desire to preach the gospel in regions that were not already established by another man's sphere of accomplishment, as he says in verse 16. So that's the reason why we are here, to proclaim the word of God. And we are not proselytizers. We do not seek to get other people from another church to come to our church. We seek the lost. We seek to pray for those who are in our body, and we pray that the Lord would increase that number of people who do attend our fellowship, but we never desire to go outside of our bounds that God has placed in this ministry. And that's important to me. But the Lord will provide. The Lord guides where God provides. That's a fact. Not only financially, but in the realm of the Spirit as well. We have been truly blessed as a church. Though we're small, we have been very, very blessed indeed because God's Word is what we rely on and it always has been and it always will be. As long as I'm here, that's the way I approach this ministry. Hopefully, very much like Paul approached his ministry with a heart to do God's will, to be in obedience to His commands, to proclaim the gospel record to proclaim His strength and His power to everyone who is to come. And that is 
my goal, my purpose, my prayer for us always. Let it be done according to God's will in us, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Grace and peace.